Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. It's Monday the 22nd of May. Manchester City have won the Premier League. Philip Schofield is out of a job. But there are other minor stories unfolding this week too. And here to help me out with them is Alex Andreo. Morning, Alex. Morning, Andrew. How you doing? You alright? Yeah, I'm alright. Glad to hear it. So let's start with the one that's probably going to dominate the first few days of the week. Suella Braverman's speeding ticket and her other self-inflicted troubles. After being caught speeding, the Home Secretary asked civil servants for advice on arranging a private speed awareness course back when she was Attorney General in 2022. Rishi Sunak's now under pressure to order Solari Magnus, the uh, ethics advisor, to investigate. And now the Mirror has a story that Braverman's spads were lying to journalists that she hadn't been caught speeding at all. Alex, what's going on and what does it all mean? Well, I mean, like you said, the story is not about the speeding fine itself. The story is about, I guess, the attempt at a cover-up. So first of all, you have uh, Suela Braverman trying to arrange a sort of solo speeding awareness course, which I understand is occasionally done for famous people, by the way. And had she instructed a lawyer privately and tried to get this arranged, she probably could have had it done. And this wouldn't be a story. But what she did is she asked uh, civil servants to do it, which means she was basically using her power as a minister of the state to try and get out of a difficult situation personally, which is a big no-no, you know. She was basically asking civil servants to break the civil service code, which under the heading of honesty, one of the principles of the civil service, instruct civil servants to use resources only for authorised public purposes and never to deceive or mislead the public or be influenced by improper pressures. And I think a cogent argument could be made that that's exactly what Suela Braverman was trying to get them to do. And then on the side, you have the mirror-breaking story this morning that they had directly asked her special advisor, Jake Ryan, on the 4th of April, whether she had been done for speeding, and he dismissed it several times, including as complete nonsense. The counterclaim from her team was that she was stitched up by civil servants, of course, always the enemy within, but, you know, that was exactly the claim to the mirror about the whole story, so I don't know how much uh, stock to, to put in that. Plus, The Times gave her side ample opportunity to comment and they decided not to. So all these excuses they're coming up with now seem a little bit manufactured, exposed factor. And it's all happening against the backdrop of her, shall we say, very active week last week. She was freelance (laughs) over the shop at the National Conservative Conference, taking pops at Sunak, attacking government migration policy. Wait till she finds out who's in charge of government migration (laughs) It's Suella Braverman. It looks like she's almost begging to be heroically sacked to become the conservative Diane Abbott, you know, sort of uh, political suicide by tweet. Does she really have a shot at going further in the Conservative Party if this kind of stuff keeps coming to the surface? Look, I mean, part of the explanation is that she feels untouchable because she represents a big part of the the, uh, Conservative Party within Cabinet. And so she thinks that Sunak can't really sack her. So she's fully in campaign mode for the next leadership election, basically. 
But there, there is another angle. There was a very interesting piece by Stephen Swinford in the Sunday Times about a new grouping emerging, led by Lee Anderson and including luminaries like Miriam Cates, Danny Kruger, Jonathan Gullis, basically the NatCon lot, to challenge Sunak internally on things like immigration. Braveman is the unofficial leader of this group, right? There is an alternative analysis of that, other than an insurgency directly against Sunak. I think it's actually a very shrewd move to reconcile the wishes of the old blue wall and the old red wall, which are not aligned most of the time. So Sunak can pursue the sort of sensible technocratic policies that please, you know, the southeast and the southwest, while this grouping can present itself as an internal opposition. You know, they can go, only we can hold the government's feet to the fire effectively on things like immigration and attract votes in the old red wall. So I wouldn't necessarily look at it as a very chaotic move. There, there might be more strategic elements to it than that in a sort of this internal grouping presenting itself as the hard line because that appeals to their voters. And so they can go to their voters come next general election and say, well, I disagree with a lot the government is doing, but I am the your best chance of getting change in that respect from within the Conservative Party because if you vote for Starmer, we know they love immigrants and they will just open the borders. And and I think there's potential to that to be quite effective. So I would watch that. Sunak has said he has full confidence in her, which anybody who follows football <laughs> knows exactly what that means. But she is also the world champion at getting sacked and coming back five minutes later. I fully mm. expected an announcement later in the week where Sunak says, I've accepted the resignation of the Home Secretary and I'm delighted to name her replacement is Suella Braverman. Um, <laughs> but many would say all this, you, you brought up immigration. Many would say this is not unrelated to the immigration figures which are due out this week. It's been heavily trailed that despite Brexit, net migration has almost doubled from around 336,000 on the eve of the referendum in 2016 to knocking on the door of three quarters of a million. The FT says it's largely down to small boats, refugees. What should we be looking at and what is the political significance of these figures coming out? Well, we should be looking at the proportion of Ukrainian and Hong Kongers in those figures. Um, we should be looking at the proportion of students in those figures. We should be looking at the proportion of small boat crossings, which will be tiny. That might be a good purchase for the opposition to say, why are you solely focused on this tiny sliver that uh, that is part of migration? But yes, you're right. It does tie into the previous story in that there may be benefits for Braverman in resigning now. She could weave a narrative that she was not allowed to bear down on immigration because of Sunak and Hunt. She can basically avoid blame for her own cock-up. And so, again, I think there are loads of opposing forces playing out within that. Sunak might ask his ministerial standards advisor, Sir Laurie Magnus, to look at this. This time it might result in the same sort of thing that happened when he looked into Zahawi, who had to resign, Rab being looked at by an outside uh, uh, King's Council, 
also resulted in his going. So I guess the question is whether Sunak is brave enough to lose control of this by handing it to someone else. My guess is for the reasons we discussed, that is not a risk he can take because that would give basically Braveman the ability to resign and become a sort of martyr, a hero, just as her own cock-up catches up with her. But, you know, this is about the contest basically after the next election. And conventional wisdom is that that will be between one insane and one relatively more sane candidate, say, Braverman versus Mordant or Badnock versus Cleverly. So the jockeying at the moment is about who emerges as the candidate of each faction rather than going at each other. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so... Yeah, so it's who becomes the the standard bearer for each side. That's what all the convulsions are about at the moment. Moving away from the Conservative leadership and Braverman, to just look at this, this migration figure story, it kind of in isolation, if we can. Sunak, mm. so far, I think he said, again, it's the FT. I think the numbers are too high, and I'm committed to bringing them down without getting into specific measures. That's a real kind of, I'm going to do something. <laughs> but something enormous will be done. Well, I won't tell you what it's going to be. You know, this is, you know, we, we sort of always look for full stops on Brexit, don't we? But it, but for something that was supposed to control immigration, irrespective of whether we agreed with it or not, to have failed so conspicuously, this is surely going to be the big story of the middle of the week when the figures come out. Hmm. And he's already saying he has inherited these figures, by the way. I mean, look, there's not much more I can say in this. As I have been pointing out for, well, near enough two decades now, This is a very simple mathematical equation, which just doesn't add up for Tories. One cannot be against migration and against people having babies here, which they are through a combination of low housing supply, tax disincentive, attacking workers' rights, high childcare costs, and against paying people where, and against expecting to retire early and keeping a standard of living. One of those elements has to give. All right. The the option to be a whole country of pensioners playing golf while nobody collects the bins simply doesn't exist. Labor will have to come in from somewhere. That's a small L labor will have to be provided in some way. And that can only happen in one of three ways. Either we have more babies or we allow more migrants into the country or we work for longer or for less money. I mean, It's one of those things. Take your pick. You cannot have a situation where a party constantly agitates against all of those elements. The fallout from the Northern Ireland local elections is continuing to descend all around us. Sinn Féin is now the largest party in local government in Northern Ireland. Uh, The influential blog Slugger O'Toole calls it the most seismic Northern Ireland election ever. For the first time since the franchise was widened in the 1880s, the unionist vote is less than the nationalist vote, writes Philip McGuinness. The nationalist bloc gained a majority of the vote in both Belfast and Derry for the first time. Now, this week, the head of the Northern Ireland Civil Service is calling for talks to set up a government. That's what you generally do after an election. But Stormont has been paralysed for 15 months due to the DUP boycott. What, what does this result mean for the returning functioning government to Northern Ireland, Alex? So I think they are rolling the pitch for that to happen anyway. 
And I will point to a very stage-managed question in Prime Minister's Questions last Wednesday, when you might remember it was the Deputy Prime Minister, Oliver Dowden, taking the questions. The leader of the DUP in Westminster, Geoffrey Donaldson, stood up and asked for assurances that Northern Ireland's equal status to the rest of the nations in the UK would be guaranteed by legislation in the face of the Windsor framework. And Oliver Dowden, very interesting, gave that commitment directly to introduce a piece of legislation to do that. Now, Oliver Dowden would not have done that in Sunak's absence unless this has been floated and discussed and prepared previously with the DUP, right? Mm -hmm. He would have taken some holding position for the week the Prime Minister is away. He wouldn't have said, yes, we're planning to do that. That says to me that, as we have been discussing for a long time, the DUP is preparing to go into power sharing and restoring Stormont at some point towards the end of the summer. The Democratic Unionist Party could weave a narrative that it didn't do so badly in the um, local elections because it actually held its own, it, it tread water. But if you look carefully at the figures, you will find that basically the, the gains came at the expense of the DUP, which then cannibalized the UUP. And, and that's the only reason it, it kind of stayed to where it was in, in, in terms of numbers of councillors. And it was largely the SDLP that lost to Sinn Féin. But the reason these elections could be incredibly important is because if you look at the polling in the Republic of Ireland, in the South, it puts Sinn Féin on track to be the next Irish government. And the implications of having Sinn Féin in control in the North and in the South, I cannot overemphasize how seismic that could be. There's also a result in the Greek general election. Conservative Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis and his new democracy party have won with 41% of the vote. And uh, you're a bit down about this, aren't you, Alex? Oh, it was it was crushing, Andrew. I did a daily last week on these elections and the journalists kept saying to me that they have been dubbed the mute elections because basically people were refusing to talk to pollsters. So no one had any genuine idea of what was going to happen. The polls going into the election were putting New Democracy, which is the right-wing party, basically neck and neck with Syriza, which is the left-wing party, on 29-30%. Well, the results started coming in and it became clear that not only had the polls underestimated New Democracy's share by about 10% or over, it ended up with 40-odd percent. It had overestimated Syriza's share by about 10 points. And so what was meant to be a neck-and-neck -neck election turned out to be an election with 20-plus points between first and second. And if you look at the last few months and the last couple of years in Greece, the economic collapse 
the mismanagement of the energy crisis, the massive train wreck at outside Tempe, which also had huge political implications, the the what we call the Greek Watergate scandal, where the government was found to be bugging political opponents, even ministers of its own party. I mean, if you put all that together, the fact that new democracy basically managed to increase its share is simply an astonishing blow to progressives. Mm. It's depressing. It is depressing. I mean, I have to say it's not surprising because effectively during the last four or five months, new democracy has engaged in a in a program of bribes. That's the only way to describe them. It has basically stuffed everyone's mouth with gold under the guise of the energy crisis. It has stuffed pensioners' mouths with gold. It has stuffed especially newspapers and TV channels' mouth with gold, which have been uniformly fellating the government for the last four months. So it's not surprising. Greece fell to number 107 out of 180 in total countries in the press honesty and impartiality index in the latest figures. It really is a country that is prone to propaganda and where propaganda is possible. And what we're seeing, I think, is the Erdoganization of that political contest. It is incredibly depressing. But on the upside, Mythos Lager is really nice, I suppose. That's what I'm to. <laughs> Meanwhile, yeah. on the world stage, still on the world stage, China is enraged by the G7 nations uh, who issued stern criticism of Beijing at this, their summit at the weekend. G7 warned China over its militarization activities in Asia and the Pacific. China, in return, has warned the UK in particular to stop slandering the country, and it has banned the UK chip firm Micron Technology from access to Chinese infrastructure in what might be called a tech for talk move. Do you see what I did there? <laughs> I do. I do. Never, never say this again. <laughs> I will never say it again. Yeah. So what, what should we draw from this? What we should draw from this is that there is a general a realignment, I think, of the West. Basically, people are uh, consolidating their position on Ukraine against Russia and against China, the more China aligns itself to Moscow, the more I think the West is uh, coalescing around a position of open confrontation. Uh, Sunak described China in his speech as the biggest challenge of our age. And Beijing responded with, with fury saying that the Chinese ambassador to the UK accused Britain of malicious slandering. And so I think we can see the rhetoric intensify in the next few weeks. All of this is stuff that would simply largely go away if the conflict in Ukraine were resolved. Well, speaking of the conflict in Ukraine, the big issue this week is going to be Bakhmut which may, mm. remains a very confused situation. Zelensky insists the city is not occupied. The Russian mercenary leader Yevgeny Prigozhin has claimed that Wagner has already taken it. I mean, do we know? What does, what's the significance of this? I think it has taken it. 
but I think there's nothing there to take anymore. Yeah. Um, so, so in a strange way, both sides are sort of telling the truth. Russia has taken the geographic location where Bakhmut used to once stand, but there's nothing there because they have been bombing and flattening it for a year now. It's quite literally just a pile of almost primarily Russian dead bodies. But but it had become of significant symbolically, and so we shouldn't underestimate that. The question now is, how do the Russians defend it? Again, because there's nothing really there. There's no structures there. It's just a flattened field. And so it's quite difficult to defend. And if it has become of symbolic significance, is it an area where as soon as Russians withdraw troops to take them somewhere else, the Ukrainian army will do a quick raid, basically, and take it back? And so it becomes a, a bit of a millstone round Russia's neck because having claimed it as a great victory, it now has to hold it. <laughs> and we know that Ukraine is about to push in other areas and do an offensive in other areas. So, um, yeah, strategically, it's, it's very interesting, but I'm not sure it's of huge military significance. Finally, for today, there is a possible treat ahead in Parliament this week where the Standards Committee could be finally about to hand down its decision on the Boris Johnson Partygate inquiry. We've been waiting on this for months. Uh, at vast cost of the public purse as well, Boris Johnson's defence, of course, paid for by you and me. We all know the potential consequences for the former Prime Minister. Possible suspension, possible by-election. How could this shake out, Alex? I mean, Johnson's star has fallen pretty badly in the past few weeks. Even his uh, Conservative Demo uh, Democratic Organisation fan convention was a bit of a squib. Do they even yeah. want him back? Will it matter what comes down? I don't know. I mean, you know, never underestimate the, the Conservative Party's ability to self-immolate, I would say. They might want him back and they might have him back, but it won't be before the next election, obviously. Nobody's talking about this. Uh, the, the Standards and Privileges Committee had been held back because of the local elections. And with the local elections out of the way now, both here and in Northern Ireland, I have been hearing rumours from a little birdie, a contact of mine, that the committee's report might come out this week. Um, and I heard this early last week, but but I hasten to add, this is just heavily, heavily unconfirmed rumours. So th that's what's going on with that. Look out for it. If it does come out, I think it will be on Wednesday afternoon. Other things to look out for, the retained EU law bill, despite the government watering down, saying they won't um, automatically sunset 4,000 plus pieces of legislation, but they will only do about 600. It's still in ping pong mode, right? So it returns for its final stage in the Lords. Uh, I think that happens today. And I think the ping pong starts midweek. And so the government is expected to overturn the Lords' defeats, but Labour will support the amendments. And this is no longer about the number of laws that are automatically sunset or how it's done, but there is an amendment there to give Parliament the final say on any of those pieces of legislation being overturned. So, so it's an attack on this Henry VIII power 
that uh, uh, the Secretary of State had given themselves to do this kind of stuff. And then the other thing that's happening is the minimum service levels, the strike uh, bill basically also enters ping pong this week uh, with Lord's amendments trying to water down the government's ability to impose minimum levels on strikers and Labour expected to support that in the Commons. So those are the two big pieces of legislative um, battles about to happen. And of course, the biggest thing happening in the whole week is, oh God, what now? Live at the Leicester Square Theatre on Wednesday night. Absolutely. <laughs> so if you don't have your tickets yet, get your tickets. It'll be tremendous fun. And if they, if they re- imagine the fun if they release the Standards Committee on Wednesday afternoon in time. Oh my goodness. Like, Bring it on. This is what we want. That's Start Your Week from the Bunker. Thanks for listening. Alex, thanks for getting up early to talk us through this stuff. My absolute pleasure. Listeners, we've got tons of good stuff coming up this week. Tomorrow, Tuesday, Roz will be talking to uh, Raf Bear from The Guardian, friend of the podcast, Raf is brilliant, about his book on how to survive politics. Later in the week, we're going to be looking at the gratifying decline of the neo-fascist Proud Boys in the US. And I will be interviewing Sadiq Khan about fixing London's air and what it's like to be the most conspicuous Muslim in the UK. Remember, you can get all of this stuff early by backing us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Thanks for listening, and we will see you tomorrow. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Andrew Harrison with Alex Andreve. The producers were Kasia Tomashevich and Liam Tate, with audio production from me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson, Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production.